Section 14 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Wheel. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4, by James Boswell. Section 14. His noble friend, Lord Elibank, well observed that if a great man procured an interview with Johnson, and did not wish to see him more, it showed a mere idle curiosity, and a wretched want of relish for extraordinary powers of mind. Footnote. When Lord Elibank was seventy years old, he wrote, I shall be glad to go five hundred miles to enjoy a day of his company. End of footnote. Mrs. Thrale justly and wittily accounted for such conduct by saying that Johnson's conversation was much too strong for a person accustomed to obsequiousness and flattery. It was mustard in a young child's mouth. One day, when I told him that I was a zealous Tory, but not enough, according to knowledge, and should be obliged to him for a reason, he was so candid and expressed himself so well that I begged of him to repeat what he had said, and I wrote down as follows. Of Tory and Whig A wise Tory and a wise Whig, I believe, will agree. Footnote. Horace Walpole wrote three years earlier, Whig principles are founded on sense. A Whig may be a fool, a Tory must be so. End of footnote. Their principles are the same, though their modes of thinking are different. A high Tory makes government unintelligible, it is lost in the clouds. A violent Whig makes it impracticable. He is for allowing so much liberty to every man, that there is not power enough to govern any man. The prejudice of the Tory is for establishment. The prejudice of the Whig is for innovation. A Tory does not wish to give more real power to government, but that government should have more reverence. Then they differ as to the Church. The Tory is not for giving more legal power to the clergy, but wishes they should have a considerable influence, founded on the opinion of mankind. The Whig is for limiting and watching them with a narrow jealousy. To Mr. Perkins. Sir, However often I have seen you, I have hitherto forgotten the note, but I have now sent it, with my good wishes for the prosperity of you and your partner, of whom, from our short conversation, I could not judge otherwise than favourably. Footnote. Mr. Barclay, a descendant of Robert Barclay of Ury, the celebrated apologist of the people called Quakers, and remarkable for maintaining the principles of his venerable progenitor, with as much of the elegance of modern manners as is consistent with primitive simplicity. Boswell. End of footnote. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson, June the 2nd, 1781. On Saturday, June 2nd, I set out for Scotland, and had promised to pay a visit in my way, as I sometimes did, at Saville, in Bedfordshire, at the hospitable mansion of Squire Dilly, the elder brother of my worthy friends, the booksellers, in the poultry. 
Dr. Johnson agreed to be of the party this year, with Mr. Charles Dilly and me, and to go and see Lord Bute's seat at Luton Hoe. He talked little to us in the carriage, being chiefly occupied in reading Dr. Watson's second volume of chemical essays. Footnote. Now Bishop of Llandaff, one of the poorest bishoprics in this kingdom, his lordship has written with much zeal to show the propriety of equalising the revenue of bishops. He has informed us that he has burnt all his chemical papers. The friends of our excellent constitution, now assailed on every side by innovators and levellers, would have less regretted the suppression of some of his lordship's other writings, Boswell. Boswell refers to a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury by Richard, Lord Bishop of Clandaff, 1782. If the revenues were made more equal, the poorer bishops, the bishop writes, would be freed from the necessity of holding ecclesiastical preferments in commendam with their bishoprics. De Quincey says that Sir Humphrey Davy told him that he could scarcely imagine a time or a condition of the science in which the bishop's essays would be superannuated. De Quincey describes the bishop as being always a discontented man, a railer at the government and the age, which could permit such as his to pine away ingloriously in one of the humblest among the bishoprics. He was, he adds, a true Whig, and would have been made Archbishop of York, had his party stayed in power a little longer in 1807. End of footnote. He talked little to us in the carriage, being chiefly occupied in reading Dr. Watson's second volume of chemical essays, which he liked very well, and his own Prince of Abyssinia, on which he seemed to be intensely fixed, having told us that he had not looked at it since it was first published. I happened to take it out of my pocket this day, and he seized upon it with avidity. He pointed out to me the following remarkable passage. By what means, said the prince, are the Europeans thus powerful? Or why, since they can so easily visit Asia and Africa for trade or conquest, cannot the Asiatics and Africans invade their coasts, plant colonies in their ports, and give laws to their natural princes? The same wind that carries them back would bring us thither. They are more powerful, sir, than we, answered Imlac, because they are wiser. Knowledge will always predominate over ignorance, as man governs the other animals. But why their knowledge is more than ours, I know not what reason can be given, but the unsearchable will of the Supreme Being. He said, This, sir, no man can explain otherwise. We stopped at Wellin, where I much wished to see, in company with Dr. Johnson, the residence of the author of Night Thoughts, which was then possessed by his son, Mr. Young. Here some address was requisite, for I was not acquainted with Mr. Young, and had I proposed to Dr. Johnson that we should send to him, he would have checked my wish and perhaps been offended. I therefore concerted with Mr. Dilly that I should steal away from Dr. Johnson and him, and try what reception I could procure for Mr. Young. If unfavourable, nothing was to be said, but, if agreeable, I should return and notify it to them. I hastened to Mr. Young's, found he was at home, sent in word that a gentleman desired to wait upon him, and was shown into a parlour 
where he and a young lady, his daughter, were sitting. He appeared to be a plain, civil, country gentleman, and when I begged pardon for presuming to trouble him, but that I wished much to see his place, if he would give me leave, he behaved very courteously, and answered, "'By all means, sir, we are just going to drink tea. Will you sit down?' I thanked him, but said that Dr. Johnson had come with me from London, and I must return to the inn and drink tea with him, that my name was Boswell. I had travelled with him in the Hebrides. "'Sir,' said he, "'I should think it a great honour to see Dr. Johnson here. Will you allow me to send for him?' Availing myself of this opening, I said that I would go myself and bring him. When he had drunk tea, he knew nothing of my calling here. Having been thus successful, I hastened back to the inn, and informed Dr. Johnson that Mr. Young, son of Dr. Young, the author of Night Thoughts, whom I had just left, desired to have the honour of seeing him at the house where his father lived. Dr. Johnson luckily made no inquiry how this invitation had arisen, but agreed to go, and when we entered Mr. Young's parlour, he addressed him with a very polite bow. "'Sir, I had a curiosity to come and see this place. I had the honour to know that great man, your father.' We went into the garden, where we found a gravel walk, on each side of which was a row of trees, planted by Dr. Young, which formed a handsome Gothic arch. Dr. Johnson called it a fine grove. I beheld it with reverence. We sat some time in the summer-house, on the outside wall of which was inscribed, Ambulantes in horto audiebant vocem dei. Footnote. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. End of footnote. And in reference to a brook by which it is situated, Vivende recte qui prorogat horam, etc. Footnote. Vivendi recti qui pro rogat horam, rusticus expectat dum defluat amnis, at ille labitur et labetur in omne volubilis aevum. And sure the man who has it in his power to practise virtue and protracts the hour, waits like the rustic till the river dried, still glides the river, and will ever glide. Francis. End of footnote. I said to Mr. Young that I had been told his father was cheerful. Sir, said he, he was too well-bred a man not to be cheerful in company, but he was gloomy when alone. He never was cheerful after my mother's death, and he had met with many disappointments. Dr. Johnson observed to me afterwards that this was no favourable account of Dr. Young, for it is not becoming in a man to have so little acquiescence in the ways of providence as to be gloomy because he has not obtained as much preferment as he expected, nor to continue gloomy for the loss of his wife. Grief has its time. The last part of this censure was theoretically made. Practically, we know that grief for the loss of a wife may be continued very long, in proportion as affection has been sincere. No man knew this better than Dr. Johnson. We went into the church, and looked at the monument erected by Mr. Young to his father. Mr. Young mentioned an anecdote that his father had received several thousand pounds of subscription money for his universal passion, but had lost it in the South Sea. Footnote. This assertion is disproved by a comparison of dates. The first four satires of Young were published in 1725. The South Sea scheme, which appears to be meant, was in 1720, Malone. 
In Croft's Life of Young, which Johnson adopted, it is stated, By the universal passion he acquired no vulgar fortune, more than three thousand pounds. A considerable sum had already been swallowed up in the South Sea. Some of Young's poems were published before 1720. End of footnote. Dr. Johnson thought this must be a mistake, for he had never seen a subscription book. Upon the road we talked of the uncertainty of profit with which authors and booksellers engage in the publication of literary works. Johnson. My judgment, I have found, is no certain rule as to the sale of a book. Boswell. Pray, sir, have you been much plagued with authors sending you their works to revise? Johnson. No, sir. I have been thought a sour, surly fellow. Boswell. Very lucky for you, sir, in that respect. I must, however, observe that, notwithstanding what he now said, which he no doubt imagined at the time to be the fact, there was, perhaps, no man who had more frequently yielded to the solicitations even of very obscure authors to read their manuscripts, or more liberally assisted them with advice and correction. Footnote. Crabbe got Johnson to revise his poem, The Village. He states that the doctor did not readily comply with the request for his opinion, not from any unwillingness to oblige, but from a painful contention in his mind between a desire of giving pleasure and a determination to speak truth. End of footnote. He found himself very happy at Squire Dilly's, where there is always abundance of excellent fare and hearty welcome. On Sunday, June 3rd, we all went to Savile Church, which is very near to Mr. Dilly's house. It being the first Sunday of the month, the Holy Sacrament was administered, and I stayed to partake of it. When I came afterwards into Dr. Johnson's room, he said, You did right to stay and receive the communion. I had not thought of it. This seemed to imply that he did not choose to approach the altar without a previous preparation, as to which good men entertain different opinions, some holding that it is irreverent to partake of that ordinance without considerable premeditation. Others, that whoever is a sincere Christian, and in a proper frame of mind to discharge any other ritual duty of our religion, may without scruple discharge this most solemn one. A middle notion I believe to be the just one, which is that communicants need not think a long train of preparatory forms indispensably necessary, but neither should they rashly and lightly venture upon so awful and mysterious an institution. Christians must judge each for himself what degree of retirement and self-examination is necessary upon each occasion. Being in a frame of mind which, I hope for the felicity of human nature, many experience, in fine weather, at the country house of a friend, consoled and elevated by pious exercises, I expressed myself with an unrestrained fervour to my guide, philosopher and friend. My dear sir, I would fain be a good man, and I am very good now. Footnote. He had within the last seven weeks come up drunk at least twice to a lady's drawing-room. End of footnote. I fear God and honour the King. I wish to do no ill and to be benevolent to all mankind. He looked at me with a benignant indulgence, but took occasion to give me wise and salutary caution. Do not, sir, accustom yourself to trust to impressions. There is a middle state of mind between conviction and hypocrisy, of which many are conscious. By trusting to impressions, a man may gradually come to yield to them, and at length be subject to them, so as not to be a free agent, 
or what is the same thing in effect, to suppose that he is not a free agent. A man who is in that state should not be suffered to live. If he declares he cannot help acting in a particular way, and is irresistibly impelled, there can be no confidence in him, no more than in a tiger. But, sir, no man believes himself to be impelled irresistibly. We know that he who says he believes it, lies. Favourable impressions at particular moments, as to the state of our souls, may be deceitful and dangerous. In general, no man can be sure of his acceptance with God. Some, indeed, may have had it revealed to them. St. Paul, who wrought miracles, may have had a miracle wrought on himself, and may have obtained supernatural assurance of pardon and mercy and beatitude, yet St. Paul, though he expresses strong hope, also expresses fear, lest, having preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. The opinion of a learned bishop of our acquaintance as to there being merit in religious faith being mentioned, Johnson, why, yes, sir, the most licentious man, were hell open before him, would not take the most beautiful strumpet to his arms. We must, as the Apostle says, live by faith, not by sight. Footnote. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. End of footnote. I talked to him of original sin, in consequence of the fall of man, and of the atonement made by our Saviour. Footnote. Dr. Ogden, in his second sermon on the Articles of the Christian Faith, with admirable acuteness, thus addresses the opposers of that doctrine, which accounts for the confusion, sin, and misery which we find in this life. It would be severe in God, you think, to degrade us to such a sad state as this, for the offence of our first parents. But you can allow him to place us in it without any inducement. Are our calamities lessened for not being ascribed to Adam? If your condition be unhappy, is it not still unhappy, whatever was the occasion? With the aggravation of this reflection, that if it was as good as it was at first designed, there seems to be somewhat the less reason to look for its amendment. Boswell. End of footnote. After some conversation which he desired me to remember, he, at my request, dictated to me as follows. With respect to original sin, the inquiry is not necessary. For whatever is the cause of human corruption, men are evidently and confessedly so corrupt that all the laws of heaven and earth are insufficient to restrain them from crimes. Whatever difficulty there may be in the conception of vicarious punishments, it is an opinion which has had possession of mankind in all ages. There is no nation that has not used the practice of sacrifices. Whoever, therefore, denies the propriety of vicarious punishments, holds an opinion which the sentiments and practice of mankind have contradicted from the beginning of the world. The great sacrifice for the sins of mankind was offered at the death of the Messiah, who is called in Scripture the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. To judge of the reasonableness of the scheme of redemption, it must be considered unnecessary to the government of the universe that God should make known his perpetual and irreconcilable detestation of moral evil. He might indeed punish, and punish only, the offenders. But as the end of punishment is not revenge of crimes, but propagation of virtue, 
it was more becoming the divine clemency to find another manner of proceeding, less destructive to man, and at least equally powerful to promote goodness. The end of punishment is to reclaim and warn. That punishment will both reclaim and warn, which shows evidently such abhorrence of sin in God, as may deter us from it, or strike us with dread of vengeance when we have committed us. This is effected by vicarious punishment. Nothing could more testify the opposition between the nature of God and moral evil, or more amply display his justice to men and angels, to all order and successions of beings, than that it was necessary for the highest and purest nature, even for divinity itself, to pacify the demands of vengeance by a painful death, of which the natural effect will be that when justice is appeased, there is a proper place for the exercise of mercy, and that such propitiation shall supply, in some degree, the imperfections of our obedience, and the inefficacy of our repentance. For obedience and repentance, such as we can perform, are still necessary. Our Saviour has told us that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfil. To fulfil the typical law, by the performance of what those types had foreshown, and the moral law by precepts of greater purity and higher exaltation. Here he said, God bless you with it. I acknowledged myself much obliged to him, but I begged that he would go on, as to the propitiation being the chief object of our most holy faith. He then dictated this one other paragraph. The peculiar doctrine of Christianity is that of an universal sacrifice and perpetual propitiation. Other prophets only proclaimed the will and the threatenings of God. Christ satisfied his justice. The Reverend Mr. Palmer, Fellow of Queen's College, Cambridge, dined with us. Footnote. This unfortunate person, whose full name was Thomas Fisher Palmer, afterwards went to Dundee, in Scotland, where he officiated as minister to a congregation of the sect who calls themselves Unitarians, from a notion that they distinctively worship one God, because they deny the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. They do not advert that the great body of the Christian Church, in maintaining that mystery, maintain also the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity in unity, three persons and one God, the Church humbly adores the divinity as exhibited in the Holy Scriptures. The Unitarian sect vainly presumes to comprehend and define the Almighty. Mr. Palmer, having heated his mind with political speculations, became so much dissatisfied with our excellent constitution as to compose, publish, and circulate writings which were found to be so seditious and dangerous that, upon being found guilty by a jury, the Court of Justiciary in Scotland sentenced him to transportation for fourteen years. A loud clamour against this sentence was made by some members of both Houses of Parliament, but both Houses approved of it by a great majority, and he was conveyed to the settlement for convicts in New South Wales, Boswell. This note first appears in the third edition. Mr. Palmer was sentenced to seven, not fourteen, years' transportation in August 1793. It was his fellow prisoner, Mr. Muir, an advocate, who was sentenced to fourteen years. When these sentences were brought before the House of Commons, Mr. Fox, 
said that it was the Lord Advocate's fervent wish that his native principles of justice should be introduced into this country, and that on the ruins of the common law of England should be erected the infamous fabric of Scottish persecution. If that day should ever arrive, if the tyrannical laws of Scotland should ever be introduced in opposition to the humane laws of England, it would then be high time for my honourable friends and myself to settle our affairs and retire to some happier clime, where we might at least enjoy those rights which God has given to man, and which his nature tells him he has a right to demand. End of footnote. He expressed a wish that better provision were made for parish clerks. Johnson. Yes, sir, a parish clerk should be a man who is able to make a will, or write a letter for anybody in the parish. I mentioned Lord Monboddo's notion that the ancient Egyptians, with all their learning and all their arts, were not only black, but woolly-haired. Mr. Palmer asked how did it appear upon examining the mummies. Dr. Johnson approved of this test. Footnote. The mummies, say Blakesley, have straight hair and in the paintings the Egyptians are represented as red, not black. End of footnote. Although upon most occasions I never heard a more strenuous advocate for the advantages of wealth than Dr. Johnson, he this day, I know not from what caprice, took the other side. I have not observed, said he, that men of very large fortunes enjoy anything extraordinary that makes happiness. What has the Duke of Bedford? What has the Duke of Devonshire? The only great instance that I have ever known of the enjoyment of wealth was that of Jamaica Dawkins, who, going to visit Palmyra, and hearing that the way was infested by robbers, hired a troop of Turkish horse to guard him. Footnote. Mr. Dawkins visited Palmyra in 1751. He had an escort of the Argor of Hassia's best Arab horsemen. Johnson was perhaps astonished at the size of their caravan which was increased to about two hundred persons. The writer treats the whole matter with great brevity. On their return, the travellers discovered a party of Arab horsemen who gave them an alarm. Happily, these Arabs were still more afraid of them, and were at once plundered by the escort, who laughed at our remonstrances against their injustice. End of footnote. Dr. Gibbons, the dissenting minister being mentioned, he said, I took to Dr. Gibbons, and addressing himself to Mr. Charles Dilly, added, I shall be glad to see him. Tell him, if he'll call on me, and dawdle over a dish of tea in an afternoon, I shall take it kind. End of section 14